Uh, but this semester we're going through um, a, a series that I'm calling uh, Ancient Gods and Modern Idols. You have a, a Disney picture of Zeus with the thunderbolt. Um, uh, but, but looking at the, the propensities that we have to, to worship and how that comes out even in modern society and in modern society even in some ways uh, like uh, ancient societies. So even before we uh, look at the passage, uh, just to mention a, a few things for the series. If here's a, a few assumptions that I think we have that I want to interact with as we, as we go through this series or, or address. I think that we tend to assume uh, that as modern people, we're you know, somewhat superior to ancient people. Not like we're better than them, but just you know, that, that we're kind of better than them. <laughs> that we've maybe evolved to a different level, but at least things have progressed to such a state that, that we are at a, at a better place and, and more you know, higher functioning uh, than earlier peoples in earlier times, right? Um, and there's plenty of truth to that. Uh, if you look at all the things that we have and enjoy in our society, especially uh, American society now, um, I mean, astronomical through the roof of just the benefits that we take for granted uh, that a lot of people throughout the world and at different times didn't, didn't have. But, but I want to speak about this not just in terms of society as a whole, but even just individually that kind of you know, pull back all the, all the other things and the, the add-ons of just the who we are and, and say how different is that? Uh, really. Um, so not just the, yes, we have the <coughs> electricity now, we have the internal combustion engine, and we have the microprocessor, and we live in the digital age, but strip all that aside, and just who we are, how different is that from, from ancient people? Um, and I, I think that assumption that we're superiors, maybe, maybe it's not as much as we would want to believe. Let's say if you took an, uh, an ancient Athenian and you dropped them down on FSU's campus, <coughs> language barriers uh, aside, and, and some of those things, I don't think they would have to give them a little while. There'd be a lot of things they'd be surprised at, like the cell phone things and all the digital everything, cars running by. But I don't think they'd have too hard a time adapting. Like the more you read ancient literature, you don't get the impression that you'd be dealing with a caveman who's still grunting or figuring things out, uh, and we're arrived at this higher level of society and teaching everything. Or if you want to spin it around, if, if, uh, if one of you or an FSU student was dropped onto uh, ancient Athens or Rome or early uh, society, uh, there'd be a lot of you know, cultural and, and language differences like thrown in there. There'd be a lot of things to get adjusted to. Like you wouldn't have a cell phone and just be able to pull out and still text the people that you're missing or look up maps. You'd have to like ask people how to get places and that would be weird. You couldn't just pull things out. Uh, but... But I, I don't think it would be too hard for you to be able to adjust and figure out what life and, and society was, was like then. And I don't think that it would be everyone would just be coming to you, tell us how to live our lives well. They would be curious about inventions of things that we have now, most of which you'd be like, yeah, I know there's like an engine and electricity and stuff, but uh, one time we made the science experiment and we made a battery, but I can't really tell you how to do any of it. Um, when you strip it down, I think we have this assumption that we're superior to people in the past, but maybe it's not as much as we might want to think. Um, I think the more you read history and even read the Bible, you see more similarities and differences. We'll interact with that assumption as we go through the series. Um, uh, along with that, uh, I think we tend to assume uh, that modern people are not as religious as ancient people. Because uh, ancient people were religious and superstitious about any, everything, right? So... Um, 
Any time there's like an archaeological dig in some type of civilization, I don't care what they find. It's a religious artifact, right? And you're like, here's a curved sheet, piece of wood. We can't tell what it was attached to, but, but invariably it was a religious artifact that was used as part of some shrine or something. Like it's always how it's, how it's interpreted. Um, but, but really, you, you go and you read um, ancient things, and, and all of life was seen as religious, um, as, as Homer talks about, um, about the Trojan War and different things. Like, it's still all the chaos of battle is also uh, Mars intervening and, and Athena doing this along with it. They, they saw all of life that way uh, religiously, whether it was war or politics or family life or, um, or even just uh, work and, and, and present-day things. Uh, so all of life religiously that way. Hopefully, especially today, as we look at uh, uh, Jeremiah 2, and as we talk more in the series about modern idols, I hope you'll see maybe we're more religious than uh, modern people are just as religious or about as religious as, uh, as ancient people. Here's a, a few thoughts to help you get there, because some of you may already be there, and some of you that's like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. He's saying that we're the same as these like Greek people, and I don't even know anyone who has an idol, right? Um, here's a couple things about idolatry. Uh, these both come from uh, the New City Catechism, a uh, recent thing um, connected to Redeemer Church in New York. Um, here's a question that it asks, what is idolatry? And it answers this way. Idolatry is trusted in created things rather than the creator for our hope, happiness, significance, and security. Have a lot to take in there, but but whatever created things then that we uh, trust in or we hope in for happiness, significance, and security. That's that's part of religious worship, the way the Bible would speak about it. Makes sense. So not everything maybe is called a god or, or, or named that way, but here it's speaking of any of these things that we uh, try to have life and comfort from and significance from the way the ancients did and called it gods and all of this, like we do in plenty of different aspects of, of life now. Think a little bit further, here's um, uh, the New City Catechism gives some uh, quotes from Luther's catechism. So around 500 uh, years ago, some of the things Luther uh, uh, said about the, the um, uh, first commandments of, uh, uh, of no other god and, and no idols, uh, he says it this way, it's a long paragraph, but I'll, I'll read it slow. You can use your minds. You're in college. All the academics aren't just in classes. You, you want to engage your mind as you're in scripture. Um, I'll listen to a message on it. Uh, what is it to have a God? Or what is one's God? And he answers in his catechism this way. To whatever we look for any good thing and refuge in every need, that's what's meant by God. A lot of atheists that have a lot of gods, if you speak about it in that way. Right? They wouldn't say, oh, this thing is a divine being. But the way Luther's talking about it, even in a context 500 years ago, very religious context, people worshiping, sorry, not worshiping relics, but uh, honoring uh, uh, relics and, and these things. Uh, he, he goes on. Um, uh, it is the trust and faith of the heart, nothing else, that make both God and an idol. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that is really your God. Many a person imagines that he has God and everything he needs, provided he has money and property. Uh, he relies upon these, boasts upon these, and feels immovably secure. 
But look, he too has a god named Mammon or, or stuff. That's the, that is the money and property to which he has given his whole heart. Uh, Mammon is the world's favorite idol. One who has money and property has a sense of security and feels happy and fearless. On the other hand, one who has nothing is as insecure and anxiety-ridden as if he had never heard of God. Goes on to a different side. Similarly, one who congratulates himself on, great, on his great learning, intelligence, power, special advantages, family connections, and honor and trust in them also has a God, only not the one true God. The evidence for this, I love this line, the evidence for this appears when people are arrogant, secure, proud because of such possessions, but desperate when they lack them or lose them. And it says, I, have a, I, I repeat, to have a God means to have something on which, heart, on which one's heart depends entirely. To have a God is to have something on which, on which one's heart uh, depends uh, entirely. Just a little bit of perspective uh, to say maybe modern people aren't so much less religious than ancient people. Because that's the way that scripture speaks about uh, uh, what a God is or or how we uh, look at these these things. Uh, So his assumption of being... um, Superior to ancient people, less religious than, than ancient people. And, uh, and one other uh, assumption, uh, kind of along with those things, that I think we tend to assume that, that while things at times can be hard, uh, as modern people, we're, we're pretty good on our own. Uh, we're pretty capable uh, to handle life, to make what we can of it, uh, and, and, to, and to get along well. And we all know there's tons of, of exceptions to that. And when those exceptions occur, uh, we fall flat on our face and we don't know what to do because we live under the assumption that we're, we're supposed to be able to handle our life uh, pretty well uh, and pretty good. And I especially mean that, handle it on our own in a sense where we, where we don't need God. Uh, that's just the, the assumptions of the modern world that we live in. However, that you connect to that or, or don't see yourself uh, connecting there. Um, and I think for believers, that assumption is easily there, uh, too. Um, and we see it in lack of prayer, or we see it in shallow engagement with the Word and with the community. Um, but, but instead, um, we desperately long for more from this life. We desperately long for more than we're getting from this life, and that we know how to get for ourselves. Uh, that how scripture teaches things is that we're desperately long for more from this life and that only in God is there true satisfaction, true rest, and true hope. I think that the, the ways we give our hearts to other things are only found as we would uh, love and trust in and, and look to uh, God. So it's a complicated introduction. It's a complicated series. Uh, but, but those are three of the things we're acting with. That's, that's superiority to ancient people, less religious, and, and not needing God. And I think Scripture challenges all of those uh, things. So uh, turn with me to, um, uh, to Jeremiah chapter 2. I'll give, you, uh, let me, I'll give you a little bit of the context before we read, but I'll, let me pray for us even before I, uh, before I do that. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord our God, uh, oh, Lord, we long for 
I long for my heart uh, to cling uh, to you and you entirely and you alone um, and so many other things that um, I look to and run after. Uh, Lord, that's true for all of us in this room. It's true for uh, everyone on this campus. Um, And and Lord, uh, we thank you that we can open this book uh, and hear from you, hear from a God who is true, uh, who satisfies, who's bring, who isn't just trying to use us up and get something from us, uh, but who has given uh, yourself for us uh, to fill every need. Uh, but also, Lord, that you call us away uh, from the emptiness and the brokenness of giving our hearts to things that can't fill it. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we ask for your presence and your help uh, as we uh, even read your word, uh, speak to, seek to speak the truth of it uh, plainly and clearly and boldly and helpfully. Uh, Lord, would your spirit uh, be present uh, so that your word doesn't return to you void, uh, but accomplishes your purpose even in us, Uh, and even on this campus, uh, and among the people that we might uh, uh, connect to or have conversations with, or that your uh, gospel would grow uh, and extend for your glory. Uh, For you, Lord, alone are worthy of it. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Jeremiah chapter 2, we got printed in in verse 11. Let me give you just a little bit of the context. Uh, not do uh, too much, but, uh, but, but God's people in the Old Testament, and this is God's people being about to be sent into to exile. And Jeremiah is God's prophet, uh, t- usually uh, conveying why God's judgment is, is coming. Uh, in the promised land, eventually they separated, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Jeremiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom already by the time of Jeremiah had been conquered by Assyria. Uh, and and uh, by the end of the time Jeremiah is speaking of, uh, the, the southern kingdom will be conquered by uh, the, the empire, the Babylonian empire. Um, and as you hear uh, through uh, Jeremiah the corruption among God's people from kings and priests and prophets all the way down to the common man uh, is just very far off. Uh, the oppression of the poor, the fake religiousness, and uh, most of this passage is speaking, uh, is really talking about idolatry, talking about the false religious uh, worship of the people at the time. And the language of the whole section, if you're to read it, there's some incredible expressions uh, all through here. Uh, the, the language of the expression is almost, uh, is really speaking of God's relationship with his people as a, as a marriage, and his love for them and his covenant to them, and how much they have abandoned him uh, to love other things instead. Uh, and gone away from him and forsaken them. And so it has the tone of a, um, uh, uh, it would be too trite to say it has a tone of like a, a friend who's gone through a breakup. But if you have a friend who's gone through a breakup and you hear now it all makes sense, all the hurt that was there, all the things that, all the love that wasn't shown in it. Uh, God in Jeremiah chapter 2 is showing how much God's people have been forsaking him and abandoning him and loving other things instead of him. All the way through. And how ridiculous that is. Uh, when he is the one true God. Who has redeemed them. Who has freed them. Who has fulfilled his promises to them. Even as he promised more to them. That they've walked away from him. So I'm going to pick up actually in verse 9. In just a, a few verses here. But hear the word of God. Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord. 
and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kadar and examine with care, see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So this passage is speaking then about that propensity uh, that we have, uh, that we mentioned earlier, that propensity uh, for our heart to cling to something, for significance, for hope, for meaning. Uh, How much our hearts want to rely on something as being able to give us the life that we want, Uh, that we're inclined to worship. That's how I want to put it from this passage. We're inclined to worship. Maybe as you hear that, you're like, um, already no, That's, that seems a little dated. Uh, I've gotten up on a Sunday morning uh, before on campus, and uh, let me tell you, people aren't like all scattered around going to, you know, or looking for, hey, can anyone give me a ride to a house of worship? I really want to go and, and worship right now. I'm so inclined uh, toward this, right? It's not, that's like the deadest time on campus. Like there's a few people, you know, that are still coming back in, you know, uh, and then there's uh and then there's maybe some people that, you know, decide they were going to get up still on Sunday morning, go get some brunch, you know, do Sunday right, really enjoy it a little bit. Um, but <clears throat> if I'm driving on, you know, on the way to church, most of the driveways I see, even through Tallahassee, semi-religious uh, town, most of the driveway, the cars aren't empty. Um, the driveways aren't empty. The cars are, are, are still there. Everyone's not rushing to, to worship, right? So, eh, yeah, maybe. Um, on the other hand on how you look at what's worship and how we engage in some of these things. And I'll, I'll be careful. I'll come back to not just overstate everything as, as idolatrous worship. But, but still, um, there's times when things fill up around here, when people are all excited and into something. There's, there's uh, Saturdays in the fall where this stadium is full and all the parking lots are out here and far from here are all filled up and people are looking for rides to get closer here. Uh, for what they want to experience, and I love FSU football, not down on FSU football. Hear me out, hear me out. Um, or, or currently, uh, if you're keeping up with some basketball, yeah, <laughs> none of y'all excited about this. Like, I'm so excited right now. FSU is doing good in some basketball. We are top 10, and we just beat Notre Dame again uh, last night, and, and Tucker Center over the Civic Center is starting to fill up uh, again. Or just take any Friday, Saturday night, and the clubs and the bars are, are packed out, and people are looking for something. And not just Friday and Saturday, but, you know, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, right? Like, this is FSU. We know, we know the things that, that we look for uh, in it. Um, just to say, maybe there's, maybe there's things that we're looking for to get life from. Uh, that's not always what's going on in those things. Um, but, but Luther, to go back to that comment again, in, in what would have been a very uh, outwardly religious context, 
Right? Not like now where we're like, no, oh, it's, it's weird to be religious now. That was a context where everyone uh, was Catholic, everyone was religious and followed a lot of the religious uh, forms and did these things uh, together, even if they were in Latin and didn't make a lot of sense at the time. That was still just how life was seen and what it was done. And still, when he talks about uh, idolatry and gods that we would set up and what that is, he talks about the heart. He talks about the inclination of the heart. That there's something about humanity, how we're made or how humanity is shaped, that we long for more. We long for meaning. We long for significance. Uh, we long for hope. And we look for something that we can cling to that will assure us that things will be okay, that it will give us rest, that it will be enough, uh, that things will be a little bit uh, better. Um, and it can be uh, good things, bad things, or, or just things that don't matter. And, but, if, as we're, but even Luther in that context said, it's not just what looks like a temple where worship takes place. Um, but it's in our heart what things we give ourselves to. Now, Luther's pretty great. It's not that he was such a genius. Uh, that's the way that the Bible talks about worship. The catechism that we read from Luther is him explaining, like I said, the, the uh, first and second commandments on gods and no, no other gods and no other, no, not having idols. Um, because as Jesus even sums up the commands of Scripture for us, what's the greatest commandment? But to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbors ourselves. Um, but to love God with our whole self. The Bible describes God as jealous for our love, that he's the only one who's, who's able to handle it and is deserving of it. And he, he doesn't want that love to go to other things that they can't uh, handle it. Um, Calvin would go on to describe the human heart as, a, as an idol factory. Around the same time as Luther, a little bit later, uh, that, that our hearts... So much want things to, so much want something to hope in and say things are going to be all right, that we're constantly setting things up as idols. And he's not saying the heart like shapes a piece of wood into, uh, what is Zeus supposed to look like again? What do we, how do we do his idol? It's not what he's saying. Um, but our heart makes things and say, how can this be what makes life good for me? And you can just take coming to FSU or a particular class you're going to take or what major you're going to be or happens all the time in like a relationship, uh, in a dating relationship. And maybe it's a great relationship. Maybe it's a horrible relationship. Maybe it's going to last forever. Maybe it's on the, on the, but we can take that relationship and go, if this is right, this will make all of my life go well. Um, or I feel like if these tests go through, then all of my life will go okay. And we keep looking from one thing to the next because, as Calvin puts it, the heart's an idol factory. It's always uh, trying to find something this way. A New Testament scholar, Brian Rosner, talks about idolatry, uh, describes uh, kind of three aspects of it. He says, a God is that which one loves, trusts, and serves above all else. And we give our heart to it in love and devotion but we're also trusting it to be what will make our life okay. And, and so we, we do what, what that thing wants from us in order, to, um, in order to follow it all the way, way through. So something doesn't have to be called a God, shaped like an idol for us to worship, us, worship it. Um, feels good when the Knowles win. Uh, feels great when you get an A on your test. Um, 
or even just when you can buy something that you, can, that you wanted, even when you can just buy the groceries that you wanted, it, it feels good. And that, that's okay. That's not always wrong. I'm excited when the Knowles win, and that's not always wrong. Sometimes I'm, I'm taking, trying to take too much from it. Uh, sometimes I'm trying to live off of that moment and suck everything out of it as if that's what's going to make life happy. Or I don't realize it then because the Knowles are usually winning, but when we lose, what is this? You've let me down. Uh, this was supposed to make my I spent how many hours this Saturday just to watch you lose? Are you kidding me? Um, right, it's like, wait, there's a bunch of college guys and pads like playing a game out there, right? But we, we try to like draw as much life from it as we can, or we're devastated when we can't get the grade that we want, or get the look that we want, or buy the thing that we, that we want. When we begin to pin our hopes on it, how we find ourselves disproportionately overwhelmed by it, when we give our heart to it and make it into an ultimate thing, um, that's what the Bible describes as worship. Uh, and that's what God says that he wants, uh, and that's where God says that he wants us to give ourselves uh, to him alone. Uh, because again, he's the only one who's able to handle it. He's the only one deserving of our love and our trust that way. Um, <clears throat> we're going to go briefly uh, through the points with this. Uh, I know this week I'm doing a lot of setup with it. I still want you to be in Scripture, and we'll continue to be in Scripture more uh, as we go through this. But, but I want you to be asking yourself as we look through these verses, uh, what does your heart cling to? Um, where do you see that propensity of being inclined uh, to worship uh, towards good things and bad things? Because the passage brings out how much we're inclined to worship, but particularly that we're inclined to worship what's false. We're inclined to worship what's unworthy, unworthy and can't sustain our hopes. Um, maybe you're listening to me going all about all this and you're like, idolatry, what? Like, all right, can this guy... Drop it and let's go on to something real. Like, I know what the truth is, and I'm just going to continue in the way of what the truth is, so why give me all this stuff, right? Whether you're looking at that from an evolutionary standpoint, or you're looking at it as Christianity being the truth, or, or, or whichever way. Uh, well, listen, this passage starts uh, especially with those who know the truth. Uh, first point is we want to just, just track through it uh, a little bit is, um, uh, is, is from truth uh, to lie. Just in verse 11, first part of verse 11. Uh, Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? Saying this is, this is unheard of. Here's, here's Israel, God's covenant people, whom he is the one true God, redeemed out of, uh, in, in the Exodus, out of Egypt, brought into the promised land, uh, made his temple and presence unknown with them, blessed them, kings all, all the way through. Here's the one true God, and they know him, the real God. Um, but they've gone after other gods. Here's, here's the language of the, of, of the verse right there. It's, um, hey, the, the Canaanites who worship Baal, did they all of a sudden give up Baal and go worship Ra of the Egyptians? No, it doesn't happen. And when the, when the Athenians, the, the Greeks and the Romans uh, hear about uh, the Egyptian gods, they don't, they don't abandon um, uh, the Greek pantheon and go and, and, and worship the Egyptian gods. Or the Egyptians don't do that about, about the Greeks. Yes, the, the Greeks and Romans added all sorts of other gods into the mix of who they would worship. 
Acts 17 talks about they even had an altar to an unknown God, right? We'll worship whoever. But it was unheard of for, for someone to, for a group of people who their heritage and their culture was all shaped around their gods who had a claim to who they were as a people, for them to give up on those gods and, and go after someone else's deities. That doesn't happen. Like, Maybe somewhere in history there's an example, but I don't, I don't know of it. And you look at the people, that's not the way that it works. You, you keep with the gods that were your people, your heritage, your culture. But that's not what Israel did. The Israelites are worshiping Baal. They're worshiping, they're adopting the practices of the people around them and saying, you know what, that worship seems better to us. I think we'll go along with that. And it's clear that those gods aren't gods, right? We don't have a problem saying Athena's not a real god. The Baals were, were not real gods. There's, there's cultures that were devoted to this belief and this idea of here's these gods. And as we do these things, as we have these have their temples, as we meet at the high places, that, that they will bless us, will be more prosperous, they'll take care of our children, whatever different things, right? Devoted to them. And we would say, that's ridiculous, these are not gods, just, just pieces of stone, uh, pieces of metal, uh, whatever, just ideas that people have made up. And they would still cling to that, but the people who know the truth and know the one true God walk away from him and would rather worship the lie instead. That's what was going on in, in Jerusalem. Um, Sad. It's, it's a warning, I think, for, for all of us, however much uh, truth we understand there. Um, but can you see it a little bit? Um, I mean, we want to say, no, we, we believe the truth. We want to stand for the truth. Um, but, um, man, I'll take any compliment you want to give me. <laughs> right? Like, it, it might not be the most true thing that you've said all day as, as you say something to me, but I might remember it for a while. Because it feels good. You're like, yeah, we don't believe the lies that, we're, that are like obvious. Unless they re feel really, 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 really good. And then we still, wow, there's probably a little bit of truth in it. Um, right, we can say however much we love truth, but we gravitate uh, toward lies. We gravitate toward the counterfeit. Um, I mean, every commercial that you watch on TV, this is what it's built on. It's, it's fine. Some commercials are better than others, but it's... Essentially, like, you want this and you long for this, uh, and this product might bring it to you. And you're like, yeah, that's not true, but I might buy that product because I want that thing. Uh, and we, we buy into the lies of the things that tell us, yeah, life's going to be a little bit better. You'll have more hope this way. Uh, and we gravitate uh, towards it. Um, right, you wouldn't, there's, there's a thing called counterfeit money, right, counterfeit money. Shouldn't spread counterfeit money. Don't make counterfeit. It's gotten more and more complicated now. But every once in a while, you know, if you hand someone like a twenty or fifty dollar bill, like look it up at the light. It's got the little strip on in there inside now, different colors on it, so it's like harder to make counterfeit or fabricate. Um, and you would never take your whole bank account to a counterfeiter and be like, "Hey, here you got a lot of counterfeit money. Trade you, right?" Um, But there's this, there's this horrible truth that God is real, that he made everything and it belongs to him, that he's holy and can demand our whole self be given to him. And we're afraid of that. 
Um, and, and we're afraid that he just fine condemn and get rid of us. That's not who God is, and he shows the truth about him as more than that. Uh, that Jesus comes as the way of the truth and the life that we get to be reconciled to God, set free uh, in the truth, that our sins that are exposed get to be forgiven and we get to be brought into him. But there's things about that truth that are hard. Lies are always feel easy, feel good. And this passage says as much as we're inclined to worship, we're inclined sometimes away from the truth that we know to the thing that feels a little bit easier. Uh, from truth to a lie, uh, secondly, from, uh, from weight uh, to worthlessness. Um, the, the second part of that verse, for my people have changed uh, their glory for that which does not uh, profit. Uh, sorry, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. I don't know if I just said the same thing twice or not, but that's what it, it says there. Um, the Hebrew word for glory uh, is, has to do with uh, weight. Something of significance is, is weighty uh, in that sense. Uh, the glory of God is the, the fullness of his character, the significance of who he is. Uh, and here it's talking about uh, that as compared to what does not profit, what the gods are able to do. Not, not able to get you more money, uh, profit in that sense, but able to benefit you. Right? Like however much you, uh, you bow down to Athena or uh, you know, we'll get into uh, Aphrodite and beauty. How much do you think like, beauty is going to make your life better or how much time that you spend at the gym or how much you spend on makeup or having the right style is going to make your day better because people will like you uh, differently and things will go well if you just have a little more beauty this way or that way or you have someone beautiful with you. Uh, as much as we might uh, hope uh, toward those things, um, uh, it, uh, right, it's vanity doesn't benefit us beyond just what it can do. Uh, uh, bowing down to Athena or Aphrodite doesn't do any good for your life. Um, so I say worthless uh, comes from verse 5. Uh, we're speaking of uh, idolatry. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Um, take the balance and the scales... Uh, and the weight of significance, the glory of God, the scripture promises that we get to, that he is our God and we are his, Christ uh, in us, right? That we get to have relationship with the glory of God. You want significance? Uh, scripture is clear about where the significance is. It's in relationship with God. And it makes a rake in the leaves as much as like some great successful thing have weight and significance and be worthy in your life as it's done in relationship with God. And you have his pleasure in it and it has value. Value when you succeed and value when you mess up. Uh, as you're in relationship with God, there's the significance that we crave and look for. We look for it in easy or being better or whatever other things. And we look for it to profit from some other false worship that's, that's worthless. Uh, scripture always, when it talks about idolatries, it's, it's vain idols, uh, empty idols, worthless. It's the vanity uh, of it. Um, and uh, our vanity, we've spent been plenty, plenty into. Um, but in Christ has come, there's the glory of God in the flesh that we would uh, be able to know him. Right, from uh, truth to lie, we're inclined away from the weight of glory 
uh, towards what's worthless. Look to benefit from there. And then, uh, then thirdly, um, what's life-giving from what's draining. Right? He says, um, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I don't know if you know what a cistern is. Uh, it's not something you, you have every day. Right? They would have dug out places in the earth and sealed it in such a way it could have held water. It would kind of catch rainwater. Um, so if you, you know, if you live in a desert or whatever, you have rain certain times, if you can hold on to that, uh, the water that way, you have another source of water. But it's not like, a, not like, a, not like what color springs. Like, uh, I've got a, um, a, a water barrel at my house, at one point the city was giving away water barrels. So we, we changed our, uh, our gutter so part of it would go around the other way and then around the corner and all the, whenever it rains, because it rains a lot in Tallahassee, uh, when it rains, it rains too much for the gutter. So it's was like, well, that's great. We can send some in another direction. We got this free water barrel. So all the water would go into the water barrel. It's like this 50-gallon thing. So it holds a lot of it. The idea is that, all right, then... When it hadn't rained in a while and it's been hot, you can just plug the, uh, plug the hose up to it and water the flowers, water your grass, whatever. Um, it was free, so, so we put time and effort into trying to get it to figure out. Uh, what I realized is it doesn't have any water pressure unless you get it up really high. So when you put the hose on, it just kind of like dribbles out. And I'm like, I can't. I didn't want to keep my long hose over there because um, that would take too much space. And so I never really used it. So it fill up with water, fill up with water, and then overflow with water. Um, now there's this nice little split down the side. Um, and the water comes in, and then it gradually just trickles out. That's my broken cistern. Um, if you come over to my house, if you'd like, you could get a drink of water from the broken cistern, if you'd like. Uh, or if we have some, you know, uh, bottled water in the fridge from, uh, from a you know, spring, uh, spring uh, bottled water, uh, you can pick which one you'd rather drink. Um, you're always going to pick the bottled water. And this passage says, spiritually, no, you're not. <laughs> like, eh, really? But really? But that's, yeah, that, that's, what it's, that's what it's saying to us. God is the source of nothing but the blood of Jesus, the fountain. No other fountain do I know. No other source, no other fountain that can give me life. Except for everyone else's approval. That, that sure feels good. Except for academic success, that's another one. I get, I feel, get a lot of life from that. Uh, hey, the strength when the knolls do well, I, I try to get as much life out of it. Oh, man, so many founts that we try to drink from, they don't hold water. And they, instead, instead of being life-giving, uh, they're draining. Who God is in relationship with him is restorative and healing and life-giving and goes on eternally. Other things have a lot of pleasure, maybe for the moment, but they drain and make us waste away. Just a little bit of an example. Um, this is not like idolatrous example, uh, but staying up late. I don't know why I still, like, as a 30-year-old, have a hard time going to bed early enough to get enough sleep. Um, but especially when I was in college, you know, it's like freshman. You stay, it's freshman year, like, you stay up till 3 o'clock because... Other people were up, and you could go do something and, and whatever. Um, and it always feels life-giving. Like, yeah, let's, let's stay up longer. Let's, let's, um, let's watch another show. Let's whatever, right? Um, we're going to get all out of this moment. Until, like, after a semester of that, you're sitting in class, and you're like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
<laughs> trying to stay up all night studying for an exam, and the life is drained out of you, right? Um, and I long for the day when I'll figure out how to just, like, go to bed consistently and get eight or even, like, nine hours of sleep would be great for me. And, like, just continue to handle life well, right? Maybe I'm idolatrizing getting enough sleep there. I'm not, I'm not sure. But, but me, you get the difference. Things that are life-draining uh, versus things that are life-giving. Uh, Jesus refers to this passage when he talks uh, in John 5 with the uh, woman at the well uh, that, he, that he gives living water, uh, that she should ask from him. He's the one who gives uh, living water. What, what heals and restores and goes on, he brings us into relationship with God that we need. And this says we've got a tendency to give that up for things that don't fill us. We have a tendency toward idolatry, toward false worship, toward removing from the truth. Listen, this passage is Jerusalem, then it's not you now, it's not Florida State now, but it speaks to us that warning. It speaks to us about our inclination to worship, our propensity of our heart to find something to cling to to be enough. It says that sometimes we're more inclined to what's false, to what's worthless, and to what's draining. It doesn't take too long before you start to realize how true that is. But that in Christ, he offers something more, deeper, and fuller. The full weight of his glory, uh, the truth of his person, uh, the grace heaped up upon grace that's found in Christ, covering over sin and bringing us into eternal relationship with him. And we get to soak in the fullness and the meaning of it.